0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 232 Fifth Century Britain with Dr. Catherine Hills. As always, this show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Anne, Chris, and Heather for signing up already. Okay, this is another interview we did in Cambridge. And actually, it was done on the same day as Rory's interview. So if you listen to that, you might remember that we were really jet lagged running on, what was it? Like less than four hours of sleep in 36 hours.
1: By this time, I think we'd had fish and chips and it wasn't helping.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we were even more jet lagged at this point. It was it was getting a little bit rough. But Catherine Hills was very polite and very kind. And she put up with the fact that once again, I was a little bit punch drunk. So Z, why don't you set the scene for what this was all like?
1: So Dr. Catherine Hills picks us up at the lobby and we meet her and she's this old school academic. She's very prim and put together and just sharp as a tack and you can tell by every movement she makes. And she starts leading us down this rabbit warren of hallways that just seems to never end. I think it took us 15 minutes to get to her office. But finally when we get there and this is Cambridge so everything is so old and rickety. But we go into her office and it's like it's beautiful. There's floor to ceiling windows and it's I want to say they're 12, 13 feet high.
0: And there was this big fireplace. If you want a good idea of how strange it was to go through all of these different hallways, it felt a little bit like Hogwarts, where you're just going through this, this complete labyrinth of a building with no windows, no nothing. And then all of a sudden, through this little doorway, this huge room opens up.
1: And it was, it was like a Hogwarts for us because we walk in and it's got these lovely squashy armchairs and a sofa and this beautiful little fireplace that we sat next to and talked to her everything is stacked tall with books just every surface has all of these books and we walk in and she's pulling out several of them to show us all these pictures and it was just such a fascinating experience to pick her brain about what she's been doing now since she said the 60s and 70s so she's an old school academic she's been doing this a long time and she really knows this field so everything that we talked about during the fourth and fifth century she's been part of that body of work and it really was a privilege to speak with her. I can't wait for you guys to hear this interview.
0: Okay, here we go.
2: I'm Catherine Hills. I'm an archeologist who specializes in the early Anglo-Saxon period. I've worked in Cambridge most of my life, but I had an active digging career in in Norfolk mostly and in other parts of Eastern England. The key site that I excavated for 10 years in Norfolk was a very large Anglo-Saxon cremation cemetery which we've recently um, re-analyzed and decided that it was mostly occupied in the 5th century and is therefore one of the key pieces of archaeological evidence for the Anglo-Saxon migration to England. Wow, okay.
0: Okay. So to begin with, I suppose, we should probably talk about the preferred term for 5th and 6th century Britain. Because in popular history, Dark Ages gets tossed around a lot, which is pejorative. And even the the nicer terms like sub-Roman and Middle Ages imply that this is the the middle bit that's not quite as good as Rome or as as the Norman period. Uh, so do you have a preferred?
2: Well, I used to give a whole lecture on that very topic, so I won't give you the whole lecture. You (laughs) can. The Dark Ages, of course, are the name that was coined by people in the Renaissance and later, who were seeing themselves as the direct heirs of the classical world. So there was the light and, you know, intelligence and intellectual something of the classical world, which they were rediscovering and redeveloping, and in between had been a great period of darkness and whatever. And... Gradually the darkness got pushed back to the first millennium AD, the period between the end of the Roman Empire and, you know, I don't know, in British terms, the Norman conquest, if you like. But archaeologists and historians have a variety of names for it. And if you look at it, you can see that it depends where they're coming from. And broadly speaking, whether they're coming physically or mentally from inside the Roman Empire or outside. Because if you're seeing yourself as a kind of heir of Rome, which most, to be perfectly honest, most Western European intellectuals do in one way or another, then you're likely to talk about things like post-Roman or the end of the Roman period or barbarian or migration or something like that. Whereas if you're more engaged with the period you might call it something like the bar, well you wouldn't call it the Barbarian Period, you might call it the Migration Period, the F- mm. Volker Vonger Vonger Vonger. Zeit and all of those names mm. and highlight movements of peoples you might name it after a dynasty and it then becomes really quite confusing because very often they use uh, the, the, Frankish, the Frankish dynasty, the Merovingians who hung out in a lot of what's now France and the Low Countries and that name is sometimes used quite far afield in Scandinavia, for example, and it's it's become the name of a period, like we might say the Tudor period. So the Merovingian period is sometimes extrapolated out into Scandinavia, particularly, and applied to artifacts and sites that never saw a Frank or not many anyway. But then when you come to England, you find that there are sort of several different systems and one of them is sub-Roman, post-Roman or late antiquity, which is a name that quite a lot of people have adopted. But that's inside the Roman Empire, really. It's antiquity, late antiquity. So in England, you could have post-Roman, sub-Roman, early Anglo-Saxon, middle Anglo-Saxon, late Anglo-Saxon but then you might be foregrounding religion. You might say this is the pagan period or it's the Christian conversion period or it's early Christian or late Christian. To be perfectly honest, I would be really, really happy if we could do it in straight chronology. If we could just say the fifth century AD or the sixth <laughs> century AD, and some people will then pull me up and say even that has a subjective little hook in it, like it's an domini it's a Christian system of dating. But it's more neutral, I think, than most of the
0: others. Right. When, for example, if if you refer to this period as the early Anglo-Saxon period, it presupposes that there was an uh, Anglo-Saxon migration and it it was large. And so (laughs) how does that impact scholarship?
2: I think it impacts it very strongly for exactly the reason that you've just given. I I think it does predicate the idea that this is a period where the people are, in some sense or another, Mm Anglo-Saxon. And I think that's one of the reasons why it would be great if we didn't use it, because it prejudges the whole issue of of how many Anglo-Saxons or whatever there actually were. But when you say early medieval, which I quite often do, (laughs) it can cause confusion because a lot of people think the Middle Ages begin in 1066 and that therefore I'm talking about the 11th, 12th centuries when I'm not. I'm talking about the 4th, 6th, 7th centuries.
0: So let's dive right into uh, the Anglo-Saxons. Archaeologically, how do we find and identify the Anglo-Saxons in material culture?
2: I'd like to go back a little bit, actually, and not answer that question directly, because I'm not convinced there is a straightforward answer to it. And to say that one of the things you have to remember when you're studying this period is that it's been adopted for many centuries, in fact, probably since the Anglo-Saxon period, as the period of the origin of the English And it's part of our national origin myth. I mean, that's basically what it is. The Anglo-Saxon migration story is the origin myth of the English people. And therefore, all study of it comes up against exactly the same political and ideological problems that all attempts to get at the reality behind any national origin myth comes up against. Because a lot of people have a great deal of um, belief invested in it. And what's interesting about this origin myth is that it hasn't always been completely dominant. If you look over the centuries at the ways in which people have understood this period, it's often been more about what's going on within Britain at the time that they're, they're writing. Right. It's about the relationships between the peoples within Britain. And so we have pretty obviously now the English, the Scots and the Welsh, and the Irish are a separate story, which I don't think... part of my remit today. And you could add in the Cornish equally, separately. So if you think that those peoples are very separate, are very different, then you look for reasons for that separation. And the obvious reason is that the English are different from the others, who are basically British, because they are invading Germans. And over the centuries, you can see that different bits of, of the different peoples within Britain have seen this differently. I think the Scots, the Welsh and the Cornish have always thought they were a bit different from the English. But the English haven't always played it quite that way. Sometimes they've been very keen to accentuate their cousins in Germany and they've quite often, I should say we, I'm English, have been quite keen to say the English are wonderful and that's why we have an empire, the sort of 19th century historian's (laughs) version of it. And that would all go into supporting the idea that the English are Anglo-Saxons, they are Germanic migrants, immigrants, invaders, whatever, and that they are indeed different from the Britons whom they overcame throughout, suppressed, etc. and so forth. But then, from time to time, you find different versions of the story. I think throughout a lot of the Middle Ages, the Normans and their successors weren't that interested in Anglo-Saxon kings. And it's probably no coincidence that it's during that time that the Arthur stories became very popular. Alternative origin myths, if you like. And then in the 20th century, in my experience at any rate, uh, as somebody studying the period, it became very ambivalent, this, this business about our German cousins and we're German, given that we fought two wars against Germany. So there was much more emphasis... And I certainly inherited this point of view when I started studying the subject in the 60s and 70s, that we were British and that there was Britain and the Britons and very much playing down the um, Germanic element, the Anglo-Saxon migrations. And that was interesting because it then got into a phase of scholarship where archeologists, at any rate, not so much historians, but archeologists were very much influenced by anthropologists and anthropologists at that stage had begun to think in a more critical way about ethnogenesis and ethnicity and what it was and to what extent it's created rather than innate and so I think 70s and 80s study of the early medieval period really were a time when we were thinking of ways of avoiding constantly labeling everything with ethnic labels and in particular as archaeologists we were very keen not to just take the historical story as our starting point. What we wanted to do and still do want, of course, is to establish what archaeological evidence might tell you as its own independent source of information, rather than just as providing pictures for the history.
0: How, in your opinion, do, for example, the laws of Inna and other Anglo-Saxon laws that speak about uh, the Welsh, the Wales, the mm. whale, uh, the 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 foreigners, the outsiders. How does that fit in into this analysis of that there might not have been the divisions?
2: This is a sort of textual source that I of course do know about, but it's not something I studied in great detail. Um, yes, there are clearly concepts of slavery, of foreigners, of inferior people. I, I think you have to allow for the idea that there were. Plenty of slaves in the early medieval world, whether people were Christian or not Christian, slavery was an institution that existed. And whether all of those Welsh, who you know obviously we think of as Welsh, were British, I don't know. I also wouldn't like to venture any very sort of any detailed comment on that.
1: So this uh, fieldwork that you mentioned, that you just mm. said was reanalyzed, can you just sort of introduce? that site and what your journey with
0: it was.
2: Could I just get myself there, actually? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. um, Because one of the things that I've, I've always found very important, and I think archaeologists perhaps are more concerned with it than some other subjects, is the way in which different kinds of evidence need to be critically assessed and looked at to see what is this kind of evidence telling us? What is the historical evidence telling us? What is the burial evidence saying? What is the palinology, the pollen mm. evidence. There are endless, all sorts of different kinds of evidence. Very sciencey, very art-based. It's one of the great things about the subject mm-hmm. of archaeology that it's very eclectic. We, we're we're interested in everything, really, at, at yeah. some level. And all these different sorts of evidence all tell you something slightly different and something slightly partial. And what we're constantly trying to do is to is to get back to what what does this one really say? If this if this pollen sequence says there were um, cereal grains here, but also some tree pollen, can you really say that means that this was largely an arable landscape? And then you get in, involved in all the palynologists who start weighing and measuring whether it says there was a lot of woodland or not much woodland. I, I mean, it's not necessarily a good example, but, but, but you see all of these sorts of evidence tell you some things clearly, and other things you have to extrapolate from. And all the time we know we've lost an awful lot because of the processes which have allowed this material to be lost, thrown away, destroyed, and then recovered and studied. It's all very in- incomplete. Right. Historical evidence is too, of course, but uh, in a different way.
1: Um, and so with that in mind, then would you want to tell us a bit about your site? And
2: Okay, yes, because... A lot of the archaeological argument about Anglo-Saxon migrations or Anglo-Saxons or what have you has been based on burial evidence. It's it's been the fundamental source that we've looked at probably too much to be perfectly honest. We'd probably better spend more time on the pollen really, but it's been beautifully obvious. It's objects like you know well that sort of necklace on that book there. Um, it's pots. Um, lots of sort of decorated pots with objects in them it's burials laid out with brooches and weapons and they're they're wonderfully obvious and so people have always noticed them when they come across a, a burial a skeleton people might or might not interpret it as being a burial of any period at all or none actually but when they come across these burials that have got what over the last 200 years have been studied and analysed and are Quite widely recognisable now as belonging to this period, then they they're often recorded or they're sometimes stolen, of course, but they're very often recorded and known about. And there were lots and lots and lots of of these objects and these burials. So some of them, as I've said, come from inhumations, and increasingly, as people have put together, you know, they, you try to organise them into classification systems and in, I mean, archaeology, you know, the The way that archaeologists do chronology, I don't know how much you've got of this, but it's partly what's actually in the ground. And that's what's really, really important. Because it's what you can find in the ground that's buried together at the same time. Or alternatively, the other thing, stratigraphy, Mm -hmm. what's been buried on top of something else. And it's never as simple as that. It's never, you know, this carpet laid out on this carpet laid out on the floor. It's always that's laid out and then they rip out part of it and dig a hole through it and throw some stuff in it. But anyway, the, the context is, is, is the crucial thing that you try and find out, you know, were these artefacts buried together in this grave, and is this grave on cutting through this Roman floor, that kind of thing. And that's, in some ways, the most important fundamental form of archaeology, really, the relationships between things in the ground when you find them. But the next one, which is in some ways perhaps the one that people have used most often, is to try and organise artefacts into classifications into and to make those into sequences, what they call typological sequences. So, you know, you've got early, middle and late. And this may sound a bit specialised, but actually all of us do it all the time. You know, we go out and we say, oh, look, that's a bit retro. And if you go out and look at a whole lot of cars parked in the streets, you can probably say, gosh, look at that 70s car.
0: Right.
2: Or else you look at another one and say, what a wonderful trendy car. So... It's actually a concept that most of us are quite used to and we can see whether something is stylish and latest, latest, latest thing or fashionable or very old and ancient. And that's essentially what archaeologists have done with pottery and artefacts and swords and brooches and whatever. And they're all quite nicely organised in sequences now. Um, and that's one of the... Sort of ways in which people classify things. One of the peop- ways in which people date things, it, it's got problems, of course, because, you know, I could take an Anglo-Saxon um, brooch and I could dig a hole in the garden and drop it into it, and somebody could come along afterwards and dig up the hole, and they might think that that meant it was an Anglo-Saxon hole. Mm-hmm. In fact, the context should then demonstrate pretty clearly that this hole was dug from a level which belongs to the twentieth or twenty-first century, but. You know, the the, the identification of graves with buckles and brooches and things that you can call Anglo-Saxon in inverted commas is, is not that problematic these days. And the other problem is that just as you could go out into Cambridge and find some old cars and some new cars, same thing's true in burials, actually, although people tend to forget that. You're not going to be necessarily buried with objects all made at the same time. You could be buried with your grandmother's fingering or something like that. But anyway, a lot of this work has been done on inhumation burials, that's unburnt graves, and they particularly seem to have had a lot of grave goods in them in the 6th century AD That's say, you know, late 5th, we're talking, I don't know, 480s, through up to, well, but for about 100 years really, mm-hmm. into the later 6th century. And that's the time when you find lots of, um, lots of burials, inhumed burials, with grave goods. And you find them all over southeastern England. You find them on the continent in northern France, the Rhineland, Belgium, Netherlands, and even some actually in, in Spain. Anyway, the whole sort of phenomenon of early medieval Europe that they're burying stuff in graves for not a very long period. It varies between 100 and 200 years. And the problem is that most of these graves and most of the stuff belongs to the period it begins late 5th century. What we're interested in is the fifth century, and it's been quite difficult to pinpoint archaeological material for that century because, on the one hand, all the straightforward markers of Roman chronology come to an end the coinage, which you mentioned earlier, and the sort of classic Roman pottery and the buildings. You can argue that some of those buildings went on being used, were crumbling away slowly, that the coinage wasn't coming in because it wasn't coming in from the central Roman government, that some of the pottery is being made into the 5th century. You can and people have quite successfully argued that a lot of Roman style stuff carries on being used and made into the 5th century Um, and I think it probably did, but it's been more difficult to make the Anglo-Saxon 5th century go backwards. Several scholars have tried to do that but there's often been problem in the way you know some kind of of a problem in the way that they do it and it's partly I think because a lot of the burials that date to this early period are cremations and so they're more difficult to date but it's also I think partly due to something else which is that we've tried to see what happened in what used to be Britain and became England Scotland and Wales as all happening in the same way at the same time. In other words, that if you can demonstrate what's happening in Norfolk, then that's what's happening in Dorset. Right. And it clearly isn't. I mean, at one level, in a very broad way, we know perfectly well that what happens in East Anglia is not what happens in Wales. Right. But actually, I'm convinced, the more I look at the evidence, that it's a very variable story on a much smaller scale. You know, Cambridgeshire isn't the same as Norfolk. Mm-hmm. Um, Essex isn't the same as Suffolk. And that's just Eastern England. And all over England you've got a sort of patchwork of what's going on and you've got a sort of disintegration of central control Mm. and you've got the whole thing breaking up into smaller, conflicting territories. And those territories are run by people of different origins and some of them are claiming authority back from being descended from Roman generals or what have you and some of them are claiming authority from being descended from German invaders or Mm. what have you. And they're fighting each other to gain control over larger and larger territories. And that means that in some parts of England, I think you do have quite a lot of incoming Anglo-Saxons. Well, persons coming from across the other side of the North Sea, whatever you like to call them. And in other other parts of the country, I think you don't.
0: One of the more famous Anglo-Saxon dynasties is the House of Wessex, which was founded ostensibly, according to myth, by Churditch. Exactly. Which That's is exactly
2: de- what I'm talking about. Which is
0: a deeply British name. Of course. And so yeah, precisely. so how much of this is related to actual invasion and how much of it is fashion and saying, mm. well, the, the cool yeah. kids right now are Germanic, are I'm Germanic.
2: I think if you, if, you, if you look at the kind of um, ways in which people are presenting themselves, whether they're officially a Roman emperor or a general or a Germanic barbarian leader or what have you, it's, it's a military flashy man. Right. And he's got a sword and he's got flashy stuff. And you can trace in the ornament of it, mm-hmm. you can trace it back to classical styles, to non-classical styles, and it's being made to something new. I think if you met King Redwald and King Chertik, um, I don't think were they around at the same time no. um, <laughs> you know they, they might have looked quite similar and yet yes I think Chadwick is a dead giveaway I think he was somebody with British ancestry right. whereas Redwald Probably was not.
0: So it, it might have been It might have been fashioned the way Ambrosius Aurelianus may have just assumed the mantle of being Roman without actually being Roman.
2: I would have thought he probably was, in some sense or another, British Roman, yeah, whatever you like. Possibly. Rather. After yeah. all, when you look at a lot of the... If, if you look at the metalwork and the art and so forth of the periods when we really are beginning to think we're talking about Anglo-Saxons, mm-hmm. they have sometimes, they've taken up ideas from the classical world as well as from elsewhere and they've turned them into something new and something different. So if you're wearing a clonking great military, Roman military belt buckle in around 400 AD you could be of various different ancestries. That is a late Roman military style belt buckle, but elements in the ornament on that buckle then get taken up and developed and turn up in much later buckles or brooches that are popular amongst Germanic people. And yes, then there is also the, the, the business of, of, of fashion and style and of if you're a big man, that's what you're wearing.
0: Right. Well, that's the strange thing that always struck me when, I, when I've been looking into this period is there's a great deal of reaching back to Rome even like Edwin of Northumbria mm. would go and when when he when he returned and, and took control of Northumbria he had a big standard in front of him in, in classic mm. Roman style but at the same time you have these Germanic artworks that that uh, that either were being brought over by migrants or were being imported the way
2: well there are some things coming over but quite a lot of things that are coming over are partly influenced by Roman-style things already anyway. And Edwin, Edwin, you know, there were probably the walls of his massive great halls in Yevering, quite possibly a plaster on the outside of them. They were quite possibly made to look like a stone building. And, of course, there is the amphitheatre, the the right. amphitheatre as well. I mean, Edwin, you're quite right, was definitely... Presenting himself as a Roman king.
0: Well, and the thing that that surprises me is is this rise of an Anglo-Saxon material culture in this period by figures of power having, say, Cerdic saying, "I am descended from the the Germanic past, descended from Woden." Uh, I don't
2: think Cerdic said that. I think you know he's, well, his, his he He is a long way back yeah. in you know his later descendants wanted to make themselves properly Anglo-Saxon rulers and so by the time you're getting these genealogies written down in, in the sort of middle, later Sa- Anglo-Saxon period, everybody is thinking of themselves as Anglo-Saxon rulers and they want to have proper Anglo-Saxon ancestry back to, back to a Germanic god except then, oh goodness me, that's wrong for Christians so we have to be descended <laughs> from Adam and Eve actually as well. But um, at, the, at the time that, that Czertic, if he existed, which he probably did, um, was, was, was around the place. I don't suppose he thought he was descended from a Germanic god at all.
0: It's, it's just, it's one of those things where why, why reach back? Because at least from the Victorian period forward, everything has been focused on Rome. Rome is, 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 is the great period. So to break strongly in material culture from Roman styles... Why would and, you
2: do that? Rome is the great empire. It's been the dominant theme in
0: in Europe from whenever to whenever. Right, and and yet we have... No, it still is. Right, but yet we have this period in Britain, uh, your period, where where we see material culture shifting towards an Anglo-Saxon style.
2: I don't think it is. I think, as I've just said, that if you look carefully at a lot of the artifacts, they have a mixture of origins, and a lot of the... For example, these buckles that I'm talking Mm. about, They have ornament on them, which begins in around 400, you know, the late 4th, 5th century. It's got quite a lot of classical scrolls on it, and it has naturalistic animals creeping around the edges of it. Whereas the naturalistic animals then gradually sort of might turn themselves into, they metamorphose into partly human, partly animal, disjointed hybrids. And they also move off the military buckles onto the female brooches. Mm. It's one of the weirdest things, actually, the way that you've got all this clonking military stuff, which has its roots in the Roman army, and it ends up being the, the sort of the classic style that ends up being buried with Germanic women. It's, it's, it's a fascinating transformation, which several people have... Someone called Toby Martin in Oxford has been particularly focusing on this lately because the category of brooch he looks at, the cruciform brooch, has got these very um you know savage sort of beasts on it if to the extent that you can untangle what animals are meant to be represented on these brooches they're often quite savage beasts and yet these are brooches worn by women and it's it's a very intriguing adoption of of the sort of what you might have associated with one gender with another and it's 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 the way that things change you know another another example of this is in Scandinavia in Denmark they have golden pendants which clearly are originally um, based on Roman medallions. Roman medallions, images of the emperor, like a huge great coin, only with a loop. And these gradually, the images gradually change into something where the idea of power, the powerful emperor, is still a powerful figure. He's changed into a rather sort of, sort of more stylized creature, often on a horse. And it looks as though, what that's trying to convey is power possibly divine power possibly you know a god of some kind or another and on the one hand you start out with a naturalistic roman emperor portrait and on the other you end up with some quite strange wild looking creatures which are well human and animal sort of figures on these on these ornaments and they're taking up the idea of power and authority divine and secular And they're adapting it and reinterpreting it. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of this, this metal work. I don't think you should see a sudden change. But what you can see a change in is, is the pottery, in fact. And I think that's more economic and technolo- technological, probably. I think a lot of the, the things that were being made, the industrial processes in the Roman period, you couldn't sustain them when there was so much political instability, you know, sure. fragmentation into small units, no security. Yeah. And so the specialist knowledge knowledge would go too. And then you end up with people probably not using pottery for everyday things anyway. I expect they're using wooden cups, leather bottles. People always forget you can use that sort of stuff. And if you're very grand, you have maybe an imported glass, but you also have metal vessels and stuff. And so the pottery that we get is the pottery from, indeed, the site that I'm studying, which is handmade pottery, highly decorated, used quite a lot for burials.
0: Now, uh, with, because you mentioned uh, Braidwold, in the East Anglian region there appears to be Scandinavian contact. We have ship burials at Sutton Hoo Mm -hmm. and things like that. Do you see any evidence of Scandinavian either trade or political or some sort of contact between the people of Norfolk and...
2: There's a North Sea Zone. I think there's a tendency to think, goodness, you know, they got in their boats and they came across from North Germany or alternatively they came from Scandinavia. We're talking about a time when it was, within limits, easier to travel by water than by road. There were not good, well, once the Roman roads broke down, there were not good roads around. And so travelling by sea, and you probably would, would do a lot of coast hopping rather than that often going straight across. And so, yes, of course there were always people going around from Scandinavia, North Germany, Eastern England... And, in fact, quite a lot of the ideas that you can see being inspired partly by Rome, partly local evolution in southern Scandinavia. So, for example, these cruciform brooches, Mm. which, um, as I said, Toby was looking at, they develop in the southern Scandinavian region, what we now might call Denmark, I suppose, and in North Germany. And then they become very popular in England and very popular in Norway. And there's a sort of slightly you know, there's a separate development. You can tell a Norwegian cruciform brooch from an English cruciform brooch, but they're clearly a very similar concept. And I'm sure there's also some direct contact. And then there are these other peculiar things, these wrist clasps, you know, they're like sort of hooks and eyes that fasten your sleeve. And they're a very Scandinavian thing, and they become very popular in Eastern England. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's plenty of contact of one kind or another, but I, I don't think you should be... I don't think we need to be too rigid about saying, this came from here. There's a lot of movement of ideas and people and artefacts. And some things get taken up and developed in one area rather than in another. You know, so, all right, so the Eastern English and the Norwegians like cruciform brooches. Mm. And they both developed them and took them up. The, some of the North Germans liked putting stamp decoration on their pots. The Eastern English love that and they take that up. Right. There are strange little miniature objects, tweezers and razors and shears and things, in pots in Schleswig-Holstein and round about there. That's an idea that the English love, and so they do a lot of that. So you get these different things coming from a region where there are quite a lot of, of, of you know, mutual, you know, complementary contacts of different mm. kinds, probably some unfriendly ones as well as friendly. And they, they develop in different trajectories from... A selection you know they put ideas together from different places
0: it's a funny thing because it goes back to what, what you were speaking about earlier where we create we have this myth because if we had stories of an english invasion into scandinavia from gildas and procopius yeah we might be talking because of those cruciform brooches oh well, this is obviously what happened
2: we might yeah. that's quite true yeah I, you know i think that's i think that's perfectly true we 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 shouldn't, obviously, I'm not for one minute recommending we don't take account of the historical sources, and they do tell us stuff that we can't, you know, we can't ignore. There have been archaeologists who said, let's treat this as a prehistoric period and let's be done with the history. But (laughs) I I don't subscribe to that view, I think that's silly. But all the same, it, it is quite clear that we have often used the archaeology to support the story that we already thought we knew, rather than pulling it apart and saying actually, what does this stuff tell us if we don't slot it into that pre-existing historical framework? And it might end up telling us something the same, it ought to really, but you know, you can't take that for granted. I think the story of the 5th century is something like what I've said earlier, which is that it definitely... Britain falls apart into conflicting territories, and I wouldn't want to draw their boundaries or say what they were, with different people running them in different ways, with varying success putting them together and what i what i think is that if you look in norfolk and around the wash and into lincolnshire you can see incoming ideas which i think probably it would be silly not to say involved incoming people <laughs> and they are burying their dead in these cremation urns they are burying their dead in the way that people at the same time were burying their dead in north germany and southern denmark lower saxony schleswig holstein that bit of the world which is where everybody has always said the Anglo-Saxons came from and yes I finally end up after years of not entirely agreeing with that that the analysis of the very same site that I excavated myself in the middle of Norfolk well I and many other people of course a very large cemetery at a place called Spong Hill next to North Elmham which is bang in the middle of Norfolk and in the 1970s we excavated the whole of this cemetery about 2,500 cremations and only 57 inhumations. And a number of cremations have been damaged in the past and ploughed out or taken out by rabbits or something. So we're talking 3,000 people buried in this cemetery. And the most recent analysis that I and someone called Sam Lucy have, and several other people actually have, have carried out suggests that this cemetery was largely in use during the fifth century. It is, if you like, it's the missing link, the archeological evidence for the fifth century, I think. Yes, I'm pretty clear, I really do think that. And what it shows is that this area is subject to heavy influence from the other side of the North Sea, and that the people are burying their dead in the same kind of pots, with the same kind of crucifold brooches, with the same kind of little miniature tweezers and things, and decorating their pots with the same sorts of stamps as they are in the area around Hamburg, for example, around there, Schleswig-Holstein. But in that same area, It's very interesting. If you come forward a little bit in time to the 6th century when they're burying their dead unburnt with grave goods, you've got all these things I was talking about earlier, like the wrist clasps and um, the big cruciform brooches, the later cruciform brooches, and strange things that hung off their belts, which we call girdle hangers because they hung off the girdles. (laughs) And
0: <laughs> I have been wondering what girdle hangers do for quite a while. What was the purpose of that?
2: Well, let's let's, let's, uh, let's It's a hanger off a girdle. <laughs> That's about what it is. But it, but anyway, the the point is that if you look at distribution maps of where girdle hangers and wrist clasps and cruciform brooches and cremation burials are, they are all in the same bit of England, hmm. and it's it's a very tight, clear regional pattern, and. It seems to me that what happens is that these characters do come over and make a foothold in the 5th century and they move into lands that have still got people in them and I don't believe they wiped out all the people that were there because some of the fields go on being ploughed and some of the land goes on being occupied. So I think there must be to some extent a mixture but nonetheless it, it does look as though the way you buried your dead by the end of the 5th century is the way that... Anglo-Saxons, what came to be called Anglo-Saxons, buried their dead. So I think there were quite a lot of them there. They are culturally dominant, they are controlling that area, but that's where they are for several generations. And if you look in other parts of England, you get much more dispersed, you get some evidence for Anglo-Saxon-style stuff and burials in Kent, in the upper Thames, but it's spread much more thinly and it doesn't form the basis for such a coherent regional picture as it does in this area here. So I think they, 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 they settle there, they arrive there, um, they form a very significant chunk, a very significant element in the ongoing conflict between all the other characters who are trying to carve out kingdoms or retain Roman control or whatever it is that's going on. And you know I, I, then a bit later, you can see Kent doing something quite different. It, has a whole lot of stuff that looks just like the other side of the channel, Fra- it looks Frankish. Yeah. It doesn't look Jewish at all, it looks Frankish. Yeah. So, so you've got these different regional patterns which are caused by political and trade connections, but in some cases, not in all cases, they are I, I think also caused by some people arriving.
0: How does the Isle of Wight fit into that? Because it looks strange as well.
2: The Isle of Wight is historically, according... All of this goes back to Bede, Bede as you right. know. You know, as Bede said, you know, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jews. And so I'm talking about the Angles, if you want, are the people who are hanging out in Norfolk and Lincolnshire. I always try to fight calling them that, but I always end up doing it because it's what everybody else calls them. <laughs> the, the The Saxons are much more sort of dispersed and so forth because because the other thing that, that I haven't really said... Or, or perhaps a little bit earlier, is that if you want to have Angles coming from Angle and Saxons coming from Saxony, and you go and look and you say, here are the things in Angle, and they suddenly travel across the North Sea into the right bit of England where it's East Anglia and so forth, and <laughs> the things from Lower Saxony travel into the other bit. Well, that's not true. Right. All of the things from Saxony and Schleswig and other things from other places end up all mixed up in East Anglia. Norfolk, Lincolnshire, and then they develop their own, you know, right. s- their own sort of trajectory and start becoming the local Anglians, whatever they are. Right. And Saxon things are not so coherently distributed I don't think. I mean there are things that are characteristic of the South but I don't think they make such a tight story. And the Jutish area is, is very odd because it's partly Kent, which as I've said is full of Frankish stuff, and it's, it says you go along the Isle of Wight And the Isle of Wight does have stuff which is also Frankish. There there, there obviously is cross-channel connection. There are English things over in France, and there are Frankish things in the Isle of Wight and so forth. So I think it's a coastal connection. I think that's a, you know, if you think about Kent, you go along the south coast and, you know, the Isle of Wight, and that, I think it was probably important because you've got the Solent, you've got the sort of, the way into inland England through past what's now Southampton
0: the the find that you've got the missing link really is fascinating because it, it seems to fit with our written record. I
2: think it contradicts the written sources, oh. or at least it doesn't contradict them. It says they're not the whole story, because the bead story they they land in Kent. Oh yeah. And what I'm saying is, and they land in Kent in the middle of the fifth century, four four nine A.D. Usually is what we're told, and. I'm not actually contradicting that. I'm perfectly happy for some chieftains to arrive in Kent in 449 AD or any other time. That's absolutely fine, (laughs) no problem. But what I'm saying is that sort of serious incursions happened earlier, a generation earlier, but they were confined. They were confined and constrained and they were up in this, you know, Norfolk round the wash kind of area. Um, And that they were you know I dare say they did have chieftains I'm sure they did I don't think they were egalitarian freedom loving democratic peasants at all I'm I'm sure they had leaders people say that partly because of that you know later scholarly argument about you know these free democratic characters and partly because the settlement evidence is quite flat in as much as we have it. It, it it doesn't appear to show towns and palaces and so forth except we've got Yevrin of course and some people think the burial evidence at any rate up until the middle of the 6th century doesn't show you a huge hierarchy but i find it very difficult to believe that that they were really egalitarian
1: you did indicate that one of the characteristics of burials and burial goods in the, in your area is that they are a bit flat that there's not a huge yes. material difference
2: in in the in well there is and there isn't so in both Cremations and inhumations and you know you late you, you, you know later on you've got the sudden who but then that's they're not that many of, of sudden whos but if you look at it in a bit more detail there is some hierarchy so for example within the cremations there are some that have got horses with them they've got cremated horses and also fragments of, of bits of glass vessels and bronze bowls and imported ivory rings and things like that. In fact, one of the one of the things that we first noticed when we were first studying the cremations was that everybody had always written off cremations and said, oh, they're just a few bits of rubbish. Well, they are a few bits of rubbish, but on the other hand, if you look at them, you know, this crumpled piece of metal is what's left of a really elaborate, valuable copper alloy bowl. This nasty melted droplet of glass was once a really beautiful glass vessel. And similarly, these bits of bones were once a horse, or indeed a human being. <laughs> um, you know, and and so, if you look at if you look at them in quite a lot of detail, you find that there are some much better equipped. You know, there are some people who are buried in a pot, cremated bones, and they're buried in one pot, and the pot's quite elaborately decorated. I'll show you some pictures later on. Okay. I'm a very visual person. I, I hate doing this talking mm, with no sorry. pictures. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. But um, anyway, so 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 there is this pot, and it's about. It, I don't know how what size of pot that is. You know, it's that sort of a size. quart, I would say. something like that. And it's it's a round sort of mm-hmm. shape, and it's got lots of decoration on it, and it's got cremated bones of a person inside it. And it maybe it's, well, I don't know whether it's a male or a female, but anyway, there they are, and they've got melted bits of this, that, and the other. And in the next pot, which is a plain pot, doesn't have any decoration, a lot of bones in there. That's a horse. <sighs> And so perhaps this person on the other side, who is perhaps slightly more likely to be male, he's got bits of these melted glass vessels and melted bronze vessels, and he's got his oars with him as well. And so that might not look like anything until you start unpacking it. But it is. It was a very... When it was laid out on the funeral pyre for the cremation, it was an impressive assemblage, and it was destruction of valuable wealth. And that person had access to more wealth than some of the other people. So it's not totally flat, mm. I don't think it is really.
1: Interesting, so, because I remember reading about some of the flatness, and and you're saying it might have been just a pro, like the fact that they were cremations was hiding it, and so you look closer.
2: I think it, that's part of it, but also, You know this is a period where we've got a lot of grave goods so we can play all these games about whether these grave goods are representing wealth or status or religious belief or gender or age or any of the other millions of things that all of us spend all our time worrying about plenty of other periods in the past you dig up some burials and there's very little to tell you whether this was a king or a slave Mm -hmm. you know if you're an osteologist you can get quite a lot out of whether it was old or young or ill or sick or male or female and possibly even these days what it ate and even possibly where it came from. You can tell a lot from that, but it isn't instantly obvious from all the trappings. Because burial in lots of periods, including the main part of the medieval Christian period, below ground, you might have all sorts of stuff above ground, but below ground, you're not that differentiated.
0: About what period in the archaeological record do we start seeing that flatness, begin to change and we begin to see more...
1: Differentiation.
0: Yeah, maybe. differentiation. Between well,
2: there's a lot of subtle differentiation in these burials, as I've just pointed out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you can yeah. spend a lifetime, and people have spent lifetimes worrying about... I'm, I'm thinking more know,
0: like pronounced. Uh, um, yeah.
2: a, a sort of steep pyramid.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, we're talking about relatively small areas. Um, we could be missing an awful lot of, of, of chieftain's burials. Or some of these chieftains could have been being buried without stuff. They could have been on tradition. So if you go further over west, partly because some of them are notionally traditionally Christian possibly, although Christianity doesn't preclude grave goods, of course, that over in west of Britain, you don't get lots of furnished burials. You don't get lots of burials with lots of stuff in them. And so some of the, the chieftains who were leading these war bands or ruling these territories, may not be buried in any way that would allow us to distinguish them as such. And I suppose that's the sort of thing I'm saying even in the Anglo-Saxon period. If a king or a ruler is distinguished, they might be, I mean we might be right to look at Sutton Hoo and say, okay, we do need to find a few more burials that are really quite lavish and that are out on on the edge, they're sort of high up there with quite a lot of a mound over the top of them. Right. I mean, you, you get pretty well-equipped graves in Kent, indeed, from the late 6th century onwards. Late 6th and into the 7th century, you get some very elaborate, lavishly bur- equipped burials.
0: So would you say the flatness is is more the uh, the 5th century, the, the pit house period where...
2: Yes, but you see, I don't think that the Gruben House, the... Structure with an underfloor pit under its floor, rather than being a pit house. I'm sorry. Um, there's, there's another big argument. Um, that's not the probably not the main house type. I mean, it it is peculiar that they are so characteristic of this period. When on the continent where they first start using this kind of structure, not that long, not that many centuries before they come across the North Sea, they're ancillary buildings. They've got clonking great rectangular wooden buildings and then they got these little holes in the ground that probably have buildings on top of them are used for industrial processes or for storing things or for doing something or another or for keeping their women in or whatever (laughs) Um, and it is a bit odd when you come over to England that the settlements that have been excavated have quite a lot of these, have more of these and don't have many of the big rectangular timber buildings but our excavations have been quite partial and when you've had a more comprehensive, thorough excavation, you very often find the Grubenhäuser are out at one edge. I mean, they're very easy to find. They're a kind of archaeology that gets recognised. You can see them on air photographs. You can see them in geophys. You can find them when you dig them because they're a nice pit full of dark earth and lots of gabbins, usually mm-hmm. food bones and broken pottery and stuff because they were used as rubbish bits. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were backfilled with rubbish after they went out of use. And so they get found. It's, it, that's a kind of evidence that's nice and obvious and visible, and people find it, and then they extrapolate from it as being the only kind of structure that there was. And I don't think it was the only kind of structure, and later on we know it certainly wasn't. We've talked about Yevring, mm-hmm. um, the, the huge great halls up there.
1: Yeah. Could I ask, what do you feel are the most important takeaways of this period and what you've learned, particularly your work in Norfolk?
2: If we're thinking specifically about this period, then what I've said about the fact that we should be looking for some Anglo-Saxons right back in the early 5th century, but that we shouldn't expect them to be overrunning the whole of the country. That's one thing. The other is that whatever identity they had is put together... I think after they get here to some extent, although drawing on ancestral ideas so that it's not... they may have had some leaders who were heroic, Angeln, whatever, but I don't think... well most of their material culture didn't come from Angeln, which is a very small bit of Schleswig-Holstein, you know. It, you know, all this stuff came from all sorts of other places and they, they turned it into something new in England. I mean the mixture of the Mysterious girdle hangers and wrist clasps and so forth. You know, if the girdle hangers have an ancestry, it's probably further south. It's, and you know, other things you could you could, you can find. So that's one set of things. The other thing that interests me most about this period, really, I suppose, is the interface between history and archaeology. I think that's why I've always liked it. That history doesn't. I mean, I don't think in any period history provides you with the only answer because the written record. Is one thing, and the physical evidence is another, and the physical evidence of what people have actually done and said is always there as a counterbalance to the written one, even even now. Right. You know, if you got out of this room and said you'd never been here, and then I could find your DNA on the sofa, you know, it would prove <laughs> <I'm> you <happy. laughs> You know, it's it's it's. So I like the fact that there are lots of different kinds of evidence, and I suppose. We construct our identity partly through material culture, don't we? I mean, people do it, I mean, I don't know that they realise that's what they're doing, but all that stuff about lifestyle Mm -hmm. and what kind of furniture you have in your house and what clothes you wear and what your your hair looks like. I mean, as far as I can see, everybody in the world is always... Dressing and clothes, you know, and doing their hair and their face and, and, and all the stuff they do. They're, they're, and they're conveying a message about themselves. Right. You and me can see we're partly in the same bit of the world mm-hmm. because, you know, you haven't come in as goths. So I'd be perfectly happy to meet you if you had. And, and you I know, used to be one. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not wearing some way out, super fashionable thing. You know, I mean, we're we're kind of quite damby, y sort of looking, so we can sort of, <laughs> of recognize each other as being moderately the same species. Well, I think I think people do that all the time.
0: So a lot of, of the material culture, this relationship to uh, ethnic identity, would is is retroactive as much as it is explanatory.
2: Yes, but it's constantly being reinvented, isn't it? And it's more important in times of stress. I mean that business about whether we're British or whether I'm British or English, and I'm definitely English, I'm afraid, and um, (laughs) I'm not Scottish, but the, you know, there have been times and contexts in which British, Scots, Welsh, we're all British, but now I think, actually, to be fairly honest at the minute, I think we're more than ever separate. Except, of course, many people are a mixture. I mean, that's, that's what I mean, I think when you look into it and you start worrying about ethnicity, genetics, ancestry and, and you find people that are firmly convinced they are X and then, well, yes, my grandmother was Italian or something, you know. And people actually pick out particular strands of their ancestry. Somebody said to me that in America, people are always, they're American, but you're Italian-American. Oh, or, definitely, yeah. It's or whatever. an obsession, yeah. Very much. Whereas I'm not sure quite about that. At the moment we've had an awful long phase of trying to pretend we're all British and I'm not sure that we are anymore. I don't know what's happening now, it's a time of horrid upheaval and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I think the great thing about archaeology is that it actually includes absolutely everything. People always imagine that it's digging up dead things, but what it really is, it's trying to understand human beings and their society through the material evidence of what they did. And that's why you can actually do it in the present, although there are various other subjects which lay claim to the study of the present, but it, it doesn't really have an end or a start. It, although, I suppose, an awful lot of it concentrates on, well, certainly the last 10,000 years since the end of the last ice age, and then all my Paleolithic colleagues would jump up and down and say, what about all these? But anyway, it's, <laughs> it's, it's about the physical results, the, the, the things that human beings have, have, have done and the way that they've interacted with their environment, which is why, actually, it would be a very good subject for people to look at and to think about when they're studying things like climate change, because, actually, if you look at the long-term record of the way that humans have interacted with the environment and the effect they've had on it and the way it's impacted on them, you can see how, how at different periods in the past... Human beings have had a, a positive, well, usually a negative impact on the environment. And, and, that's, and the, the way that changing climate has affected humans and the way they've behaved, it's, I think that's, it's, it's actually quite an important subject, a rather underrated subject for thinking about that, that, that. The long-term way that human beings and their societies have operated on this planet and what they've done to it and what it has done to them. Thank
0: you. Yeah, I think that's a good. So what stood out most for you in this one?
1: What was fascinating to me, I guess not fascinating, vindicating was she's telling the same story I think we've been trying to tell about this period of time for years now, which is that it's patchwork. There's no clear single narrative. It's a bunch of different things going on at once and it's that only becomes clear when you dig into the material evidence. It's not clear necessarily if you're lo- relying solely on literary sources, which is why in the show we try to dip into archaeology as often as we can, because it will tell you this much more muddied story. It was cool having it come from her.
0: Yeah, actually I've got nothing to add to that. (laughs) Is is there anything else I should talk about? (laughs) I
1: don't think so. Our talk with Catherine Hills was about perfect. We're gonna leave it there. We hope you enjoyed it.
0: All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail dot com, and join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and there are all kinds of other communities you can join, and you can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. dot com. Thanks for listening.